Welcome to The Performance Show, a videocast interviewing athletes, coaches, and sports scientists from around the globe. Please welcome your host, Lachlan Puyol from Puyol Athletic Development and Performance. Welcome to episode 22 of The Performance Show. Uh, former ATP player Rob Koenig from South Africa now commentating on the ATP Tour joins us. Rob, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Hopefully um, we can nail this one down with some better interconnect, internet connection from my side, Lachlan. Good to catch up, bud. Good to catch up with you too. Um, so how was the week? Uh, I know you were commentating the Rolex ATP Tour Masters in, um, in Paris, but you were based in London. Sort of, sort of just go through that a little bit? Yeah, it's, you know, when you're commentating remotely, it's never the same as when you're on site. Uh, I reckon it's about 50 to 60% better and more informative and you pick up all the nuances and uh, and all that kind of stuff when you're on site versus when you're doing it remotely like we're doing it at the moment for Amazon Prime here in London. But I think I've said to you before when we were chatting off air, I'm still glad that the tennis season is going on, Lachlan, and that's, you know, I've got work. So from a slightly selfish perspective, I'm really happy with the way things are going and I'm sure a lot of the players out there are glad that they're still able to earn a living. And I think we're getting more and more used to this, this new norm. Players in bubbles, uh, I've been speaking to a lot of guys on site, going through their routines of being tested every three days. Um, and the guys are getting used to it. You know, it was a pain in the ass when they started in, in Cincinnati in the US Open. But uh, as I said, it's become the new norm for them and, and they're okay with it. And hopefully the Australian Open starting in 2021 can, can go ahead in Melbourne. They've gone down to zero cases um, on average in the state um, in Victoria over the last, I think, six or seven days. So that's a positive um, going forward. So, I mean, if we look at players like, so Medvedev just won the, um, the ATP Rolex Masters in Paris last week. You know, you see, you see him play. He's, he's really like a brick wall. He doesn't, he doesn't miss. Who do you think coming through can really kind of beat a player like that? Um, one of the guys that I think we're going to see a lot of from in the future, if you're having a look at this season, is Hugo Humbert, the, the Frenchman. Uh, I watched him play at the early parts of the year. I commented on most of his matches when he was winning uh, Auckland, it was. I think he beat Benoit Pair 7-6 in the third in that final. And, and so much struck me about him, uh, how well he, he plays under pressure, particularly. His decision-making was outstanding. He had to deal with Benoit on the other side of the net. He was talking to him constantly, um, getting inside his grill, Obviously, playing your first final, playing a fellow countryman, and then playing somebody with Benoit Pair's personality. There's so much disruptive forces at play there that I think a lot of guys would have crumbled, but not this kid, man. And, you know, I think he's gone on to show us what a player he can be. And for me, all the matches I've done of his, um, you know, I think, for example, he's, he's had more top 20 wins than uh, Stefano Tsitsipas this season. So this is the kind of company he's keeping. Now, Tsitsipas has qualified again for the World Tour Finals. Um, but his decision-making under pressure is, is astonishingly good for a youngster. And, you know, if you're looking at somebody who's, who's kind of outside the norms of a top 15 or top 20 player, um, he's a guy to keep an eye on uh, for next season for sure. He's the kind of guy, being a lefty, he can disrupt the patterns of play that Medvedev brings to the table. Getting back to your original um, question, I think he's got the mentality. The physicality is only going to get better. I mean, the number of uh, third-set tiebreakers that he's won this season is astonishing as well against good players. So 
the kid's got all the credentials and he's still so young. That's the, that's the good thing. And I think when you win so many big matches and close matches so early on in your career, man, it just grows that belief that you belong with these guys. And we see generation after generation come in. In the last five years, we've had a very team, uh, City Pass. And you say, okay, this, this is really the generation that's going to crack the, the top three. And now we see new players like Yannick Sinner, um, Hugo Humbert, as you alluded to just before. Um, how do you think those generations sort of comparing their game styles? Well, I think somebody like Dominic Team has played better and better on a hard court. You know, we all thought he was a one-trick pony when he came onto the turf, playing his best tennis without a doubt on the clay. But ever since he switched coaches, got Nicholas Massou on board, he's playing a little close to the baseline on the hard courts, just fine-tuning his game, you know, when he is playing on that particular surface versus clay. And I think if you've got this growth mindset that I like to talk about and this mindset of constantly improving, we've heard a lot of that rhetoric coming out of the mouth of Andre Rublev of, of late. And I think somebody like Dominic Team's had it for a while, and especially so since, since he brought Nicholas Massou on board. Looking to finish a few more points off at the net, trying to be a bit more aggressive on a hard court. These guys are doing whatever they can to try and improve and compete with the likes of a, you know, a Djokovic or a Nadal, um, especially this season. Obviously, Roger hasn't been around much, but it's not easy. You know, it doesn't mean that because they're trying all these things and are improving incrementally, that they're going to beat these guys because these guys are they carved from a different cloth. You know, we're in a generation now where we've been so lucky to see three of the greatest players ever to play the sport who have the same mindset that the likes of team and co aspire to have yeah and you know in, in the last since 2006 there's only been five players to win a slam outside of um, the big three that's Marinka del potro mari silich and team which is kind of scary that's in the last 15 years we're talking what's that maybe 50 grand slams since 2006 and to only have five different winners um, including Andy Murray, it's, it's really astonishing and it just really shows how dominant the game has been. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure you grew up watching a fair bit of Pete Sampras. I certainly did. His rivalry with Andre Agassi was one of the best prior to this um, trilogy of players that we've had right now. And, you know, when, when Sampras won his 14th major, I remember it well because he beat my good friend Pat Rafter to get there. Um, we just thought, this is the most astounding accomplishment. You know, this is not going to be touched for the next 20, 30, 50 years. In the next generation, we have three guys able to do that and then some. So, you know, you can understand why it's been so difficult for, for anybody else in the chasing pack to, to compete with the big three plus, plus Andy Murray and Stan, you know. So all I can say is that uh, I don't know why it's happened. I think all three guys will certainly admit to the fact that without the other guys being around, they wouldn't have been able to achieve uh, perhaps as much because they've just been spurned onto greatness, always wondering what the other guys are doing whilst they're sleeping. Um, so certainly from me as a, as a commentator, and I'm certainly, you know, you're a, you're a fan of the sport as well. We've been so blessed to have this generation that's literally taken the sport to vertigo-inducing heights. Yes, for sure. And who do you think can um, beat that record? Like we, we might say now, 20 or 30 years, it might not be beaten, as you just said before about Pete Sampras. We've got Rublev, Rublev we've got Tsitsipas coming up. Do you think those players can, A, achieve a Grand Slam? And if they do, do you think they can take it past uh, 
20 grand slags as, as Rafa and Federer have both won? Um, hey, you should never say never. But the question I always ask is, if you were to bet every single dollar you had in your bank account, I know you've got a lot of cash in yours. Would you say it's going to be done in the next 20 years? And I ask myself that same question or in the next, as long as I'm alive, let's say. So hopefully it's a lot longer than 20 years, but let's say the next 30 or 40 years. I don't think so. No chance anybody in, in the next generation is going to get past. But if I were to choose somebody, um, I better go for somebody pretty young. And, you know, who knows, maybe somebody like uh, a Yannick Sinner or a Lorenzo Musetti, who's coming up only 18 years of age. We saw what he did in Rome. Or, or maybe somebody like a, a Carlos Alcaraz, who's winning challenges already at, you know, the age of 17, uh, on the cusp of the top 100. Um, yeah, those, those would be my go-to guys. I wouldn't be putting the likes of Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev in that company. I don't think they've won enough. Uh, enough majors as youngsters already. I think it's going to, you know, they're too far behind the eight ball at the moment to play catch up. Yeah, well, those, those three players, Verev, City Pass um, team, were, were kind of coming in when, when the big three were, you know, almost pretty much all in their prime. Now you've got the likes of Alcaraz, Musetti, um, Yannick Sinner. These guys are coming up now. They haven't hit their prime yet, but I think the big three is going to be, are we going to be, you know, at the end of their career. So it's going to give them a bit more of an opportunity to win those slams to be competitive. Yeah, absolutely. You're spot on. And I kind of equate it to when, when Roger Federer came on the scene, you know, uh, when he first beat Sampras, Sampras was coming towards the end of his tenure. I guess he certainly was. Uh, wasn't quite the play he was in his pomp. Um, and, you know, Ro Roger really capitalised in those first five or six years, there was, you know, it was a gap. There was the likes of he's beating Leighton Hewitts and, and Andy Roddix and Mark Philippoussis are the guys who, who are, who are challenging him. And he's, you know, he's, he's sweeping those guys aside. He's like a king sweeping the squatters out of his castle, as I like to describe it. Um, that was easy pickings for him. Um, but I don't think these youngsters have that luxury yet. I don't think the likes of uh, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal are, are quite as weak as, say, what Sampras and Agassi were at the tail end of their career. So it's going to be tougher for them to capitalize the way Roger did early on in, in his career. So I think it's going to make it a, a little tougher. Um, but I'm fascinated to see how it's, how it's all going to shake out. Who knows, somebody else might come that we're kind of overlooking here and, and really break out in 2021. But I think we've touched on the guys, um, you know, if you're looking for an American angle, maybe somebody like Brendan Nakashima, but I don't think he's the same quality as, say, Alcaraz or Musetti yet. What do you think have made the big three so dominant? I know you talk about the growth mindset that they have, but from a physical uh, point of view, the way that they play their style, what makes those three stand out compared to the rest of the tour? Well, um, I'll touch on each of them individually. I think Nadal... Um, is so lucky in, in the fact that he had uh, Carlos Moya around when he was a youngster to see the level of intensity that's required to be the number one player in the world. And what's the chances of somebody else from the island of Mallorca being such a good tennis player? I mean, I often make the comparison. What is more astonishing? Um, you know, the Williams sisters having two players in the same family getting to world number one 
or two players from an island the size of Mallorca winning majors and getting to number one in the world. They're both ridiculous, right? I think perhaps the Williams accomplishments is, is a little better, but Mallorca is not the biggest place in the world. So the fact that at the age of 15, he's able to practice with the world number one, see the level that's required. I mean, there's not many players that have that opportunity in such a confined environment. And I think when you, you couple that with the family that he comes from, you know, very driven. Uncle Tony was very single-minded. It was almost a perfect storm that was brewing there um, because he doesn't come from, you know, a poor family historically, which often can be a big motivating factor. He actually comes from a fair bit of wealth. You know, Uncle Tony didn't have to work. Uh, he was taken care of by Sebastian and, and the company there uh, that, that the Nadal family owned. Um, so to have that competitive drive that Rafa had at such a young age, I think is astonishing, given that he doesn't come from a poor background. So, you know, his story is, is so unique when you put all those elements together. Then you have somebody like Roger, who, who is just, you know, a freak of nature, the way he plays the game. And I don't know if you've seen the, the movie Strokes of Genius, but there's a lovely chat there with Pierre Paganini, his physical trainer, who talked about um, the importance of getting Roger's level up physically because he had this player that had all this talent. And so often he'd used the talent not quite correctly. And he was improvising because his athleticism wasn't there. And it was only after really working hard with Pierre and getting that physical level up to where he was you know, beating Sampras, even after he beat Sampras, Lachlan, he still needed another two years before he wins his first Wimbledon. A lot of people forget that. And it was in that two-year period where Pierre really worked the physical so that he could use those talents that he had to really exploit them. Because when you're in position and then you've got the talent that he has, you can do insane things with a tennis ball. And I think we've seen that right. So his is a very different story. You know, he left home early. People forget that he had a lot of, you know, discomfort from a young age his coach Peter Carter dying when he was um you know 18 running through the streets in Basel crying like a baby um Rogers is, is very unique it's different to to Nadal's and then with Djokovic you've got the the essence of you know coming from nothing war-torn country who's you know initially his his sole purpose is to make a better life for him and his family make as much money as possible and you know Novak tells the stories about all the money that his dad uh, owed to people from borrowing from this guy um, just to give Novak the chance to travel and play more tournaments. So his motivation was different to the other two. Um, so I think their stories are so unique. Then you, you put them competing against each other. It's like, you know, again, as I said earlier, it's almost like the perfect scenario where you've got three people whose will to win um, just remains undiluted and they just want to, keep taking it one step further, one step further. One guy that I thought could have mixed it with those guys, and he showed that he could, was David Nalbandian. Yep. There was a guy who had the skill level that certainly matched the likes of a Djokovic and came pretty close to matching Federer, I think. Um, you know, him and Federer had some unbelievable battles. I think he lost his first five matches as a pro to Nalbandian. That's how good he was. Um, but the guy didn't have the drive like the other three. Yeah, you know, Bandian did. I think he did beat the big three in the 2007 uh, way back. Uh, Paris 
Rolex Masters um, in the same tournament. I mean, I think he would beat either two or three of them, which is incredible, you know, within, within itself. It is. In fact, he beat seven of the eight guys who qualified for the World Tour Finals that year in back-to-back tournaments. Remember, he won Madrid and then, uh, and then Paris back-to-back. In fact, here's a little stat that I stumbled across last week. When he beat Nadal in back-to-back matches in those tournaments, both times he beat him, Nadal wasn't able to fashion a single break point in both matches. That shows you how good Nabendian could be. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's all about growth. It's all about drive. Um, and I think that's, really, that's what's really propelled those players um, to, the, to the success that they have had. Now, Mark Woodford came on a, on a podcast you know, a, few, a few weeks ago, and he kind of said that we don't, still don't know who the best of all time is yet because their careers are so enduring. They keep, they, they keep on going. Now, if you look at uh, Djokovic, who has a 27-23 to 23 record over Federer and a 29-27 to 27 over Nadal. So he's got the best win to right to loss ratio over the other two players but if you it depends on what standpoint you want to look at it from what are your takes on that well you've said the most important thing there at the end of your last sentence uh, it depends on what standpoint you want to take so me and you we have to discuss what the criteria is that we're going to use to decide who is the goat and obviously we can't do it while they're all playing there's a lovely book i read called um uh, it's just uh, the captain class, um, and it's by a guy who was a writer for the Wall Street Journal, and he talks about the greatest teams of all time. And he says that he found that when he was researching the teams, there was always natural bias. That if you were, you know, speaking for teams, the soccer teams from Liverpool, there was a bias there. If you're speaking to NFL teams, there was a bias from, you know, Florida. If you're speaking to uh, people who used to write about the Chicago Bulls, they would be slightly biased. So he had to wipe the slate clean and create his own criteria. And I think that's what we have to do when we have this discussion. We've got to be very um, particular about what criteria we have and how we weight that criteria. So perhaps, you know, all the criteria that we put in place doesn't necessarily carry the same weight. And there's a, a guy by the name of Jeff Sackman who's got a, a website called a Tennis Abstract. I really encourage your followers to check it out in some of the articles that he writes but also the historical data that he uses is incredible he keeps every match of of all the top players um it's fantastic but jeff has something called the the elo rating i don't know if you've heard of it in america it's a rating where you rate teams and he used that formula to rate the players and in their pomp when they're playing their best tennis Djokovic came out on top in that elo rating um, only just by, I think it was one or two points ahead of Federer and then Nadal closely followed. But I think, you know, we've got to use obviously the majors. I think weeks at world number one will be part of that criteria. Head to head, very important. You know, um, what about year in championships when you're playing against the top eight guys in the world? But then it's never been played on clay. So that's a disservice to somebody like Nadal, whose weakest surface is probably an indoor hard court. Um, you know, how much does Davis Cup yeah. come into play? Weeks in the top 10. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's many things. Longevity, you know, how many years you've been able to, to play, play the game for, how many weeks you've stayed in the top 10. All of these, I think, are, are very important criteria. But some of these guys have win streaks that are insane, right? You know, I was just researching 
Roger, uh, Roger Federer a little bit today. And at one stage, he won 24 finals in a row. I mean, it's insane, right? When you think about right. those numbers. In fact, it was a match that he lost uh, in, in the Masters at the World Tour Finals to Nabandian when he had, uh, I think he had one match point. Um, you know, he lost in five sets there in Shanghai. I think it was 2005, if yep. memory serves, right? That ended the 24-match the win streak in finals. Uh, I mean, who does that? It's, it's crazy. It's yeah, you know, Federer has had a six-month, uh, possibly even more, um, sort of a blessing in disguise for him for, for the COVID. Uh, he's had his knee surgery. Um, do you think this is going to be a repeat of what happened in 2017 when he had that six-month injury layover in 2016 and then winning the Australian Open and Wimbledon, the, double, the Sunshine double back-to-back? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was phenomenal because uh, that was one of the best finals I've ever commented on that. 2017 final against Rafa in, in Australia. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the same, Lachlan. Again, if you ask me to put all my money on whether he's going to win another major, um, I'm going to say no. Um, I just think a couple more years have gone by. I think the pain perhaps that he suffered, that the mental scarring after not converting at Wimbledon last year doesn't do him any good. But you know, one of the quotes that I've used um, a fair bit is that Roger Federer will stop winning majors when Roger Federer stops playing in majors. Anything else is premature because you can never count out his greatness, right? We saw how close he came at Wimbledon last year. Um, but I think that's his best shot at winning another major. Is he going to do it? Probably not, but I'd be happy to be wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm now I am biased towards Roger Federer. I hope that he... <laughs> I hope that he keeps keeps winning and, and keeps playing, but the reality always always hits. I mean, he's 39 now. Um, other players to play over the age of 40. I know we've seen the likes of Rod Laver, who was in a different era. Connors, I think, was 44. Um, the game's getting so much more physical, and it always pops the question: Where can they can they enjoy seven five-set matches at a Grand Slam? And and that's what the big question mark is. It is, and I think if you're looking for positives for Roger, the way he plays, the efficiency with which he plays. I think that's been one of his greatest assets throughout the course of his career and winning so many majors is that, you know, come the second week, he's hardly expended any energy in the opening week of a major. So, you know, come the back end of the major, he's still fresh. And, you know, you couple that with the efficiency of his movement and everything, it is the perfect scenario to win multiple majors. So, again, there's no reason why we can't see him getting through a, a draw relatively comfortably in the opening week of a major. But of course, you know, the Grand Slams really only start in the second week. It's a cliche, but it is so true. But, um, you know, I'd love to see those guys going out at Hammer and Tongs as, as much as we love these new guys. I want to celebrate these three as long as I can. Maybe I'm being selfish by saying that. But hopefully these youngsters, you know, will poke the bear enough and get in their faces enough and compete hard enough with them that it's, it's highly entertaining because I think that'll be a nice way to kind of, um, you know, really highlight the new generation of players, the Rublevs of the world and, uh, you know, uh, these guys and, and really make a name for themselves if they get a win over a Federer and a Dal in one of the biggest stages, just like, just like um, Roger did against Peter Wimbledon. Yeah. You say poking the bear. I think that's so, so big, so telling for these younger players coming through, the lower-ranked players. And we see the likes of Nick Kyrgios, he, I mean, he's poked the bear on all three occasions to, to each player. And he's one of the only players in the top 100 who have beaten all three Nadal, Djokovic, 
and Federer. Can you, do you think we'll be expecting a little bit more from him in 2021? Yeah, I never know what to expect from Nick these days, but you know, I know it's still early days in his career, but he strikes me as another David Narbandian, you know. He is a guy with he's blessed with all the talent. Uh when he wants to play, he's he's unbelievable. But, you know, can he do it day in and day out? Uh no, he can't. He's shown us that um he's told us he's not overly in love with the sport, he just happens to be good at it. And it's a great way to make a living. But he is highly entertaining. If you're gonna attract new fans to the sport. You know, Nick certainly does that. Um, uh, first and foremost, you've got to have the results, which he has done. But I think to become, you know, a real well-respected person in the game, you've got to go deep in the Masters 1000s. You've got to win those things. And, you know, you've got, you've got to be winning a couple of majors. And I think Nick is still a, a long way away from that. Yeah, and from a commentator's uh, perspective, do you enjoy calling Nick's matches? Do you have any other players who you enjoy commentating over others? Um, no question. No question. Sometimes I'll watch a match like even, you know, we saw this match at the finals of Paris. Now you've got two players who play a very similar brand of tennis in Zverev and Medvedev. And whilst I appreciate the athleticism, I, I'm the kind of guy who always focuses on the positives. Um, I understand how good they are physically and mentally, but it is very much same-same. You know, every rally unfolds pretty much the same way. If they don't hit a big serve, we know we're just going to see a baseline duel. Neither guys is pressing to come forward. So for me, it can be very vanilla tennis. Um, but don't get me wrong, I appreciate how good they are. But then give me somebody like Dan Evans, on the other hand, who, you know, at five foot 11, he's got these amazing skills and he can beat, you know, top, top players. I'd rather watch him taking on you know, Tsitsipas or, or Medvedev rather than some of these top players playing against each other because his skill set is so varied. Um, so, you know, he's a guy that springs to mind. I, I love Umber of, of, of a new generation of players because, again, he's got a, a full skill set. Um, somebody like Andre Rublev has been entertaining just because of the way he executes the shots. He's a little bit like Rafa and that he is he's so violent every time he he plays and it's just the output of energy is just insane. And I'm thinking, how long can this kid keep it up for? Yet, you know, he said one of the best seasons this year. So, so that's been fun to watch. Um, but I think in every player, there's things that you enjoy um, and some stuff you perhaps don't enjoy as much. Some it happens to be a little bit more. And like Nadal said, you know, who doesn't like watching Federer play. He says, I wish I could play like him, but I don't, right? So uh, I just wish they would speed up the courts a little bit so that players who have a different skill set could use it a bit more effectively. I think the racket technology is in favor of the baseliners. The string technology is hugely in favor of the baseliners these days. They can do stuff that they could never do, you know, 30, 30 40 years ago. Uh, but the one thing we can control is the court speed. And I think there should be an onus on tournament directors to speed it up a little bit more these days so that guys who have good slices, who, who want to play a serve and volley brand of tennis or at least come forward a bit more, get some help. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you would see more upsets, um, not just – usually we see them at Wimbledon just because the, because the grass is so different to the other surfaces. But at the likes of the, um, the, the US Open, the Australian Open, there theoretically should be more upsets with a faster court 
should uh, would benefit players, as you said, Dan Evans. Um, other players with different skill sets who like to come to the net. Uh, Lopez is another one, Feliciano Lopez, who would like a fast support. Yeah, Sitsipas is another one. I think Stefanos's his numbers, you know, when he won the World Tour Finals last year, were unbelievable. The amount of times he was coming in, uh, and I think he's actually got away from that uh, at the tail end of the season. I've definitely noticed that his numbers when coming forward hasn't been as good. Um, and I'd love for him to go back and see how much he was coming in in London last year because I think for a big guy, his movement around the net is exceptional. And I think he's going to win multiple majors, certainly on you know, three of the four um, Grand Slams. Um, and yet, many people think that clay is going to be his best surface, which would be the fourth pick for me that he was going to win a major at. But um, I love the way he plays. I love his brand of tennis. I love his physicality. I love everything about him. And last question before we go, uh, Robbie. In your in your commentating career, do you have a match that you feel was most memorable for you? Yeah, I, um, I always allude to two in particular. Um, I mentioned already to you the 2017 final with with Roger and Rafa. The level was phenomenal. The atmosphere was incredible. Um, and like you say, the backstory with Roger having been injured, being out of the game for a while, then coming back and doing it, it was just, um, you know, that, that point at 4-3 juice, a 26-shot rally that's played over and over again on Instagram and tennis TV and the likes. You know, those kind of rallies. Um, and I remember when he went down a break 3-1 in the fifth, I was commentating with Josh Eagle and Mark Petchia. I kind of turned off the marks and I said, it's unbelievable, but this this kid Nadal's got him again when it matters most. You know, in the biggest of matches, Grand Slam finals, Nadal has got his number. And that kind of we kind of all looked at each other and thought, well, yep, just too good today again from Rafa. And of course, you know, he goes on to win the next five games after that. So the whole story behind it, the way that one unfolded, it's right up there with me. But um, Murray winning Wimbledon for the for the, for the first time when he beat Jocko in the finals simply because I remember playing against Andy when he was 15 or 16. Uh, he got a wild card at the doubles in Nottingham, which was a grass court tournament the week before Wimbledon. And uh, I remember beating him and his partner there. But I knew his partner well. I never knew who this kid was. Um, and I just said to my partner, Chris Haggard, we just play everything to the youngster. He's got a wild card. We just intimidate this young kid. And, and after five games, um, we were 4-1 down. You know, we'd serve and we'd cross. He'd just rip it down our line. We'd serve and stay. He would clue the return right onto our shoelaces. And after five games, we thought, stuff that. Let's just play on his partner <laughs> for the next couple of games. And we turned the match around. And, you know, that was my introduction to this young kid called Andy Murray. And I remember going up to Judy after the match and Andy was hanging out with his mom and he was disappointed. And I just said to them, I said, I just want you to know, I mean, I think your kid's an amazing player and if he sticks at it I think he's going to have a, a good future in the sport one day um, so from there you know 10 12 years later to, to see him win at Wimbledon and be commentating on it um, and just the way the match unfolded uh, it was just incredible for me to watch the journey of this kid and, and know so much of the journey and then be able to commentate on it uh, um, was one of the coolest things yeah it, it, it's so unique to actually to play a player and then down the road, I guess, commentate their match, which a lot of people don't get that opportunity of doing. 
So that I yeah. can imagine that would be pretty, pretty cool, pretty. And I want, and I want to tell you, so I want to share something pretty bizarre yeah. with you. And like we don't know what the comment, commentary rotor is going to be for the last couple of days. Um, uh, and I actually did this for radio uh, when I did the Wimbledon final. And on the evening of his quarterfinal match, I just thought, well, what happens if I get asked in three or four days to do to do that final? How can I sum it up? when it's time to encapsulate that moment that Murray wins. And I was just lying in bed and I just thought of everything that happened in his life. You know, the whole story with Dunn Blaine and the fact that he always looks up often when he wins big matches, he looks up to heaven. And I've always thought, you know, is he thinking about those young kids that died at, at the school that he was at in Dunn Blaine? And just one or two lines came to my head and I got out of bed, it was late at night, and I just wrote them down. And I thought, well, if I get the chance to call the finals, I think this will be a great way to kind of knit it into the story. Um, and I remember when he won, I said something to the fact there'll be tears today in the town of Dunblane, but these will be tears of joy because one of their own has beaten, you know, has won the biggest prize of all, and in doing so, has beaten the greatest tennis player on the planet, Novak Djokovic. And then the scoreline came thereafter. Um, and I just felt so good about bringing it all together in that moment. But it was so funny that it came to me uh, five days before the final. Then I get to do the final. And then I get to be commentating on that final set when he wins. So it's funny how things work yeah. out in life. So that's, that's why that one stands out. That's, that's powerful. Thanks for, for sharing that. And, um, yeah, a lot of people watch, who watch commentary, they're like, how do, how do they think of this on the spot? And, I'm sure a lot of it is simultaneous, but there is probably more hours of preparation than you actually do for the match. You're 100% right. Um, sometimes I read things that are written about sportsmen or, or maybe describing a sports team or sports person. And I think, geez, you know, that's, that's a lovely description. Maybe I can incorporate bits and pieces of that into commentary to describe something because sport and especially a sport like tennis is very repetitive by nature. And in my early years of commentary, I found myself um, repeating the adjectives when a player played a good point. I just kept saying, Oh, that was incredible. That was unbelievable. That's an unbelievable backhand. It's an unbelievable volley. And you, you start to hear it when the highlights get played because it's one great point after the next. And then you realize, hang on, this doesn't sound so good. So, I kind of went away and thought, okay, how can I describe the same thing in 20 or 30 different ways? Um, and the only way to do that is, is to start making notes and, and basically learning it. But then the skill is to make it sound like it's off the cuff when you're commentating. So, so you're hundred percent right. A lot of preparation goes into it, but you've got to marry that skill to your prep to make it sound natural. Yeah, Rob, thank you. Um, thanks so much for the time and coming on um, on the performance show um, videocast. Uh, I know you're very busy with your schedule, um, getting ready for the World Tour Masters, the Nito World Tour Finals uh, next week. So thank you for, for that and uh, all the best for next week. Pleasure, Lachlan. Thanks for having me on the show, bud.